You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 9, the verses 1 to 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Then we turn to our text as we continue our series in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. We've come to chapter 15 and the first 11 verses of 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brethren at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James than to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Now I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the center of the city of Beijing, yes, you're going to get another Chinese illustration this morning, but in the center of the city of Beijing, there is a famous or perhaps infamous square. It's a large area which many of you know as Tiananmen Square. And on both sides are large, imposing, even intimidating buildings, On the north side, there is what is called the Forbidden City with its many palaces and temples. That's where the Chinese emperors used to live for centuries. On the south end, however, there is a relatively new building dating back to the late 1970s. And it also is large and imposing. And its claim to fame, while in it is housed the body of Chairman Mao. Mao Zedong lies in stick there. Some of you may know, as most of you hopefully know, he was the founder of the Communist Party, Communist China, and its first leader. And you can see him there every day. He's lying there in all of his waxy-looking glory. He's been preserved for the masses. Apparently his personal request was that he be cremated when he died, but his followers decided otherwise. They decided to embalm him and put him on permanent display. And the result? Thousands of tourists line up every day and walk by his corpse. Many of them want to catch a glimpse of their dead leader. Others go there purely out of curiosity. And then there are the tourists who go there because they want to go home and be able to say, been there, seen it, done that. And of course, some of you are wondering, no doubt, whether or not I too trooped by his body. Well, the answer is no. 
But still, as I watch the long lines of people waiting to get in to have a morbid peek, I couldn't help but think, what a contrast. Here I am, a Christian who worships and serves a living Lord and Savior, and here are all of these thousands upon thousands of people, many of them paying homage to a dead, mummified leader. How sad. How empty. How futile. And in contrast to that, what a great and priceless treasure is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How inspiring. And yet, as we turn back to our sermon series to another city and another time, namely to Corinth, we see that here again is another area of controversy. Last time it was about tongues, prophecy, and order in the church. This time it's about the resurrection. My beloved, let us turn our attention to that this morning, and Lord willing, also in some subsequent Lord's Days. I preached to you on the theme, the Apostle Paul testifies to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shall hear about the gospel that he preached, the appearance the appearance that he and others received, and the grace that he experienced. Well, beloved, this 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians begins with a word of reminder, and you can find that in the opening verse. He he reminds them about the gospel that I preached to you. And you may know that earlier he had come to the city of Corinth, and he had come there not simply to befriend them or to get acquainted with them. No, he had come there as a herald, as a spokesman of the great God of heaven and earth. And he had come to bring the news from him. He had come with the gospel. And the gospel really represents the greatest news in all the world. And so what was that news? Well, you can find it summarized in the verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You can say that in a nutshell, Paul's news was this, Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised. And of course, the Apostle Paul told them many, many other things as well. But, you know, these three things, they form the heart and the center of his, his gospel. This is really what the Christian faith is all about. It's about Christ and the great work and achievements of Jesus Christ. And notice, it's first of all, Paul says about the Christ who died. Obviously, it's hard to get excited about a death, any death. 
But nevertheless, you and I need to remember that this is no ordinary death that we are speaking about this morning. It's not death after a long life. It's not death by accident or by illness, nor is it death caused by human error or carelessness. No, this is death by design. Even more than that, this is death by divine design. Peter declares to the crowd on Pentecost Day, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You see, the death of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It was part and parcel of God's plan. It represented the climax of his redemptive purposes. Way, way back in the Garden of Eden, God had promised that he would send someone who would crush the head of the serpent. And in addition, he also said that there would be a certain cost for doing so, namely the striking of his offspring's heel. And what is that? But a reference to Christ being struck being struck by death. Yes, and all through the Old Testament, God kept that promise alive. Every lamb that was slain, every bull that was offered, every sacrifice that was administered pointed ahead to the atoning death. One day, someone's coming to pay for the sins of the people of God. One day the perfect sacrifice will be brought. One day the final and lasting offering will be rendered. And it was. It was when Christ died, when he died on Calvary's cross for the sins of his own. Yes, and it's this death that forms the first part of Paul's good news to the Corinthians. People of God, the long-expected Savior of the world has come. He has paid the ultimate price for your sins and for my sins on an accursed cross. He died for us to set us free. But then if there was a first part, there was also the second part. Namely, that the Savior who died was also buried. In other words, he was put into the heart of the earth. His body was taken, prepared, wrapped, anointed, and laid to rest. And as a result, you can all see that he really and truly died. It was not an act It was not a let's pretend kind of death. No, it was real. He breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. And he entered into the realm of the dead. And that was done, beloved, with the Corinthians and with us in mind as well. 
You see, there's no place that this Savior has not been for us. He knows that his saints will experience deaths and burial if he doesn't return. In the meantime, he knows that one day he will come again and take them from there. And he's been there. He's been in the grave. He's been in the tomb. He's been in the darkness. Only he did not stay there. For in addition to those first two parts of death and burial, there is a third part, the Apostle Paul says, a, an unimaginable, incomprehensible, mind-boggling third part, and that is he was raised. He was raised again to life and he came into glory. You know, time and time again he predicted that, didn't he? But no one believed him. They heard him, but they didn't hear him. It was just a thought too wondrous to happen. It was just a dream too too big to imagine. It was just a reality too hard to grasp. And never mind that the scriptures of the Old Testament had prophesied his death and his resurrection. How many psalms do not foretell it? How many writers do not comment on it? How many prophets had not spoken about But yet it hadn't really sunk in. But now it had all happened. Yes, and the Apostle Paul, he got to preach it. He got to preach it far and wide, all over the place. And he'd even preached it in Corinth. Yes, and they had received the message of the gospel about the risen Lord, and it had changed their lives. He writes in verse 1, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. You see, the Corinthians, they heard the gospel, and they understood the impact of the gospel, and they rejoiced. It was a blessing that transformed their lives. And indeed, beloved, it did something for them that it's been doing for God's people ever since then. And that includes you and I as well. Unlike so many communists who are trying desperately to keep the memory of a dead leader alive, we have a living leader. And Lord, And unlike any other leader who has ever lived, we have a leader who has been raised back to life. You know, when Buddha died, an emperor took his ashes and he sent very small amounts of the ashes of Buddha to 84,000 shrines. And Buddhism still today centers its worship on the ashes of a dead founder. But that didn't happen to Christ. He was raised from the dead. He he lives today. He reigns today. He intercedes today. He is coming back someday. 
have a living Savior. You know, that's really the great underlying premise of the Christian life. And you can say that's also the underlying premise of this baptism that you witnessed here this morning. Christ is alive. And he's still shepherding his people. However, beloved, among the Corinthian believers, some questions had begun to crop in or creep in. Once Paul left, some of them began to doubt. Some doubted the reality of a living Redeemer. Others doubted their very own resurrection. And when Paul hears about that, what does he do? Well, he sends them the fourth part of his gospel. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. And fourth, Christ Appeared. Yes, he appeared. People saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They heard him. They interacted with him. And Paul even names names. He gives to the Corinthians and he gives to us a list. First up is Peter. Peter? Peter should have been last, right? Well, Peter should have been off the list, but no, Peter, his betrayer, receives a personal visit. And Peter becomes Simon Peter, the rock, on whose confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in which the church is built. And second up are the twelve. And that means that Christ appeared to his core group of disciples He showed himself to those men who would go out and who would lay the foundation of the apostolic church. And third up are more than 500 brothers. Now some have died in the meantime. But Paul says most of them are still alive. And you know, it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, if you have doubts about that, why don't you look them up? Why don't you talk to them, ask them, listen to them? They will tell you what they heard and what they saw. Fourth up is James. Who is James? Well, James is his stepbrother. James is family. And he's part of that family, I would remind you, that figured that during his ministry, Jesus was really deranged and out of his mind. You know, at a certain point they came and they they wanted to take him away, give him rest and respite. They didn't believe his claims. But that too changed. Jesus appeared to James, and James believed, and he became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And fifth up are all of the apostles. Maybe you think they've been mentioned already. Did Paul not refer to the twelve? Yes, but it would appear that the circle of the apostles was larger than simply the original twelve. 
And Christ appeared also to them. And finally Paul says, Christ appeared to me. We read about that in Acts chapter 9 and about that most dramatic encounter that took place on the road to Damascus. Here we have Saul who is going to Damascus to collect more Christian scalps. He wants some more notches, religious notches in his belt. And with a lot of fervor and gusto, he heads out. And who does he meet on the way? You would never have imagined it. It was Jesus. Saul was struck down by a light from heaven and a voice that called out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Does that sound like a dead Savior? Does that sound like a Savior who doesn't know what is happening in his church and among his people? And as if there is any doubt, he declares, I am Jesus. From you are persecuting. Well, beloved, that's quite the list that the Apostle Paul supplies us with. You know, in a way, it confirms what Dr. Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And these many convincing proofs have led historians like Thomas Arnold of Oxford University to state, I've been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence that the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. You see, beloved, both the quantity of the evidence as well as the quality of the evidence is such that there is no room for doubt. Of course, it could be argued that we do not need all of these proofs. And in a way, that's true. After all, we do live by faith and not by sight, don't we? But still, you know, our God is gracious. And he supplies us with an abundance of proof. And that means, really, there isn't any room for doubt here. Sometimes we're prone to that, aren't we? There are those moments in our lives when we ask ourselves, are these, all of these promises of God, are these promises that we're reminded of this morning in this baptism, are they really true? Can you really depend on them, build on them, trust in them? Will they actually come to pass? Do I have a living Savior today? And is the resurrection of the body real and true for me as well? I think in such moments we should take out our Bibles and we should read a chapter like 1 Corinthians 15 again. 
But through it, the Spirit is reminding us that Christ risen is no pipe dream. And raised saints is not the ultimate exercise in wishful thinking. It's real. And we may teach it to our children. It's real. And one day, you know, God's going to make it so real to our senses that we shall be ashamed that we ever doubted. And so in the meantime, let us live in hope. And let us also, one more thing, live out of grace every day. That too means taking a page out of Paul's book. Whenever he thinks of Christ's appearance to him and what it means, he he thinks of his absolute and utter unworthiness. In verse 8, he uses an intriguing expression, as to one abnormally born. Now, commentators have long sweated over that expression. Most likely, Paul means to say with it that when Christ appeared to him, it was as if he was appearing to an aborted fetus or to a stillborn child. In short, as an unbeliever and as a persecutor, Paul was in a most wretched and deplorable position. He was utterly unfit for what happened to him. He was dead. Utterly dead, spiritually dead. Yes, and then he goes on to explain this further in the verses 9 to 11. He says, I am the least of the apostles. He adds, I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. And the reason, because I persecuted the church of God. I didn't just persecute a few Christians that I didn't like here or there. No, I attacked the work of God. It was the church of God that I sought to destroy and to remove off the face of the earth. And he knows that should have earned him eternal damnation. Instead of a special, personal appearance by Christ, It should have earned him eternal separation from Christ. But it hadn't happened. And why not? Well, listen to Paul as he gives the reason. The only reason he can figure out. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. What do those words tell you? Surely they tell you there's really only one reason for this appearance of Christ to Paul. And there's only one reason as to why God spared him and recruited him. And the reason, beloved, it is grace. In other words, Lord... I acknowledge it's not because of me, but in spite of me. It's not because of who I am, but because of who you are. A God of love and mercy and grace 
that I am spared, rejuvenated, and employed. You know, Paul looks at himself in his life before his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, and then he looks at it afterwards, and there's only really one word that summarizes it all up, and that's the word grace. Grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor and blessing to him. And you know, because of that grace, that grace that washed all over his life, his life becomes a beehive of activity for Christ. It's grace that drives him. It's grace that motivates him. It's grace that fills him. And it's because of grace that this life is now wrapped in resurrection, truth, and boldness. And now Paul wants the same for the Corinthian believers and indeed for all the children of God. And that includes you and I. He wants us to live in newness of life and in the full expectation of Eternal life. Beloved, do you see yourself as a child of God and as a risen saint? Do you ever look in the mirror in the morning and say to yourself, I'm going somewhere thanks to the grace of God? I'm going to life and glory Everlasting? All around are children of dust and death. But if you're in Christ, you're a child of glory. The present is yours. The future is yours. Christ has handed them to you. He has done so purely out of grace. Not one of us is worthy, and I don't care who you are. All of us deserve a different fate. But our God is gracious in His Son. And because He's gracious, we have every reason to live and to work and to hope. And you know, that's why the Apostle Paul says at the end of this long chapter, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're laboring for dead Chairman Mao, your labor's in vain. But if you're laboring for the living King Jesus Christ, your labor is never, ever in vain. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.